with Britain a narrow four-point lead. But the pro-independence camp said the lead had been whittled down by six points over the past month and the result of tomorrow's vote was still too close to call. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Ryan Curtis. Well, a special show today as we have a couple of salty dogs on the program to pepper the proceedings with some wit and wisdom. The top strategist in Asia, Christopher Wood of CLSA, is here and veteran fund manager Hugh Simon of Hammond Investment Funds. But first, the headlines. Well, we're tempted to say that it's all the Fed, Scotland and Alibaba for the next three days. But there's another important item. China reportedly adding 500 billion renminbi in liquidity to the country's five biggest banks. This hit Wall Street about the same time as dovish comments on the Fed and its meeting by the Wall Street Journal and markets shot higher. But as usual, there's some caution. The momentum we have right now in the stock market is strong and nobody knows how long it's going to last or when it might end. Um, but <clears throat> things are feeling to me a little bit like 2007 again in the stock market. That's David Scranton of Scranton Financial. He's nervous enough to be more than 50% now in bonds. There's so many skeletons right now, I believe, in the world's financial closet and geopolitical closet that it's, it's hard to tell which one's going to be the first one to pop out and mm. start the downturn and stop this momentum we're seeing. So this is going to be a big show about macroeconomics and the Fed always seeming to be rescuing the stock market. As such, we revisit the Santelli rant. Where does it say in the Constitution that some form of the government has to guarantee stocks go up or guarantee that you have a house? They don't. Where have we gone off the rails? Enough is enough. That's the tease. We'll get to more on that a bit later. An interesting note as well this morning, Betfair is paying out now early, three days early for bettors on the no vote in Scotland. They are that confident on a no. We'll get you the read on the Asian markets in just a moment. But this top story this morning, Sina saying that China is providing 500 billion renminbi of liquidity to the country's five biggest banks. The report said that the PBOC provided the banks with 100 billion yuan each. It's in the form of standing lending facilities with a tenor of three months. Some analysts are comparing that action to printing money. On Wall Street, stocks were higher and commodities rose as well. The China report was one of the catalysts. Also, uh, journal reporter John Hilsenrath said that the Fed will maintain the pledge to keep rates low for a considerable time. In the end, the S&P 500 was up 0.8%. The Dow up 100 points at 17,131. Back now to Mr. Scranton. He explains why he's nervous. Things are seem, seeming top-heavy. Uh, a lot of the bearish analysts recently are becoming bullish and raising their expectations for uh, stock market levels by the end of the year. And, you know, my thought is when, when all the analysts or most of the analysts are on one side of a bet, it, it becomes time to be cautious. So uh, that's why he is a bit nervous. But what about the mantra, don't fight the Fed? That's exactly why I'm not ready to call an end to the momentum right now. Uh, I've made that mistake a few times in the past by calling an end to the momentum too soon. Mm-hmm. So I've learned from that lesson. Uh, but I think people do need to be cautious because nobody knows when 
things are going to turn around. The reality of it is that right now we have a lot of things that don't make sense out there. You know, the fact that up until a week or two ago, uh, U.S. Treasury bond prices were steadily going up. At the same time, the stock market was going up. Uh, the 10-year Spain and Italy bonds are all paying now a, a lower yield than our own U.S. Treasury. Which is incredible. Which is incredible, Which is exactly. Incredible. And, you know, there's so many things like that out there that, that so many really, there's bubbles all over the place except for maybe certain commodities would be the only place where there aren't. And actually, copper did rally the most in 13 months overnight, and oil surged 2.1%. And not much change in the bond market overnight, though yields on the 10-year Treasury, little change to 2.59%. Mr. Scranton picks up on the idea again that he might be a little early in cutting stocks. You can never predict. In 2007, you know, nobody had predicted, even though the, the subprime mortgage crisis we knew about it in March of 2007, the stock market kept going upward for another eight months. Yeah. And, it, and that's what's happening right now is that every time there are two pieces of data that come out on a given day, one's positive and one's negative, it seems like the market has a way of shaking off the bad news yeah. and focusing on the good news. So <clears throat> there's so many skeletons right now, I believe, in the world's financial closet and geopolitical closet that it's, it's hard to tell which one's going to be the first one to pop out and mm. start the downturn and stop this momentum we're seeing. Again, that's David Scranton from Scranton Financial. Let's get a peek on Asian markets as they open this morning, uh, just here at eight minutes after eight o'clock. The Nikkei up 46 points. That's a gain of about three-tenths of a percent. In Australia, the market is higher as well. Everybody seems to like the story that the Fed may stay low for longer. Uh, the Australian market, the ASX 200, up 10 points, 54.56. And in Seoul, the Kospi is up a half a percent, gaining 10 points to uh, 20.53. In currencies, the dollar yen 107.20 now. So not too much change there. The euro at 1.2955 U.S. dollars and the pound 12 Hong Kong dollars and 60 cents. Now, to set up our guest this morning, we revisit the rant. This happened uh, quite a while ago, but this is a rant from former bond trader and CNBC reporter Rick Santelli. Why can't we get out of crisis management mode? There's always going to be something. Let me think. ISM's under 50. Oh, my God, we can't pull in QE. Or unemployment. You know, this unemployment thing really gets a spur under my saddle. I remember a point when I was talking about labor force participation rates before the election. You know, when facts really matter and people vote for their leaders. No, the unemployment rate isn't really going down because people aren't really getting jobs. What did I hear from the Fed chairman? Crickets. Crickets. Now that he ties it to the unemployment rate, boy, everybody wants to talk about that factor because if the unemployment rate goes up, that may be a good thing. If it goes down, that may not be a good thing. Why didn't we have all this information then? So why can't we take away the QE? I don't get it. What are we afraid of? Do we have a Fed that operates like a day trader where every little gyration in the market, every 10 minutes is all that matters? If you pull it away and the stock market goes down, where is it saying the constant? Constitution that some form of the government has to guarantee stocks go up or guarantee that you have a house. They don't. Where have we gone off the rails? Enough is enough. Okay, he's a reporter, uh, but it is cable television, Rick Santelli. And at the time, the Fed chair was Ben Bernanke. Mr. Chairman, what are you afraid of in the U.S. economy? Because no matter how he squeezes that water balloon, no matter how much smoke comes from that curtain, in the end, they're going to have to deal with a reality. And the longer you put it off, think being a parent, the worse the consequences are.
Rick Santelli from CNBC. And that brings us to our two eminent guests this morning, Christopher Wood, Chief Equity Strategist at CLSA, and Hugh Simon, Chief Executive Officer of Hammond Investment Funds. Uh, Gents, good morning. Thanks for coming on. Morning. Morning. It's great to be here, especially after having heard you for all the years and listened to you on the radio, driving the kids to school. It's great to be here. Yeah, well, it is uh, It is a fun program to do, and uh, I can feel the listeners out there. Uh, anyway, uh, let's get to uh, the um, the order of the day, the business of the day. Chris, first to you. Uh, you've actually been pretty darn uh, against quantitative easing. I would note that you do acknowledge that QE will probably drive up stocks in Japan, but you have been on uh, on record as saying that ultimately QE will end up being monetary quackery, a disaster, and probably the end of the fiat money system. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, there's a two different issues here. There's one, what the markets are going to do, and there's one about whether QE is a good idea or not. Yeah, so personally, I, you know, in my view, if the Fed tapers and stops QE, then it's a negative for the U.S. equity market. But uh, I think what we've had overnight is just an indication, uh, yet again, of how difficult it will be in reality to exit from QE and zero rates. Because the mere hint in press articles in the last week that the Fed was considering changing the language has seemed to prompt some market turbulence uh, rise in the bond yields, and so this latest story in the journal is now indicating that they're not thinking of changing the language. But not too much. I mean, what was the market down? A couple of percentage points. And then today the Dow is um, almost back up at an all-time high. Well, now not thinking of the market. I'm thinking of the, of the, of the interest rates. Yeah. So the 10-year bond yields risen about 30, 40 basis points, as far as I can see, simply on concern that the Fed is changing the language. I think I learned from you um, in reading uh, your Greed and Fear. And by the way, CLSA has this big forum this morning. So many thanks to you for uh, departing from the forum and joining us here on the program. I think I learned from you that um, one of the reasons that bond yields went down as much as they did uh, from 303 to start the year down to about the 230s was that that, that was investors uh, discounting QE. Well, no, yeah, no, I, th- I think but the bond market has just been sending a signal that the U.S. economy is not as strong as investors believe. However, if we... So as soon as you take away the juice, it's going to fall apart. Now, my, yeah, personally, yeah, my, my view is if, if the bond yields stay up at these levels into the tapering, then I think the bonds become a buy again. Hmm. Hugh, what do you think about the current investment in, uh, climate? I think when you look at markets, markets are driven by a variety of things. Liquidity is a major one. It's not just earnings. It's expectation of earnings. It's earnings. It's liquidity. And over the last few years, we've seen a lot of money going to the states, especially driven by a recovery in the property market, low mortgage rates, a recovery in prices, and that gave confidence of jobs. And I think property is a very good basis for an economy to start from, again, especially as it has a multiplier effect in a number of areas. So do I think that the U.S. will have a basis to continue to grow even if interest rates do modestly rise? Yes, I don't think it will fall apart. I think there's been a lot of money created. But I think you're starting to see some of that money flow back into emerging markets because of growth. Um, 
growth being in Asia, in the emerging markets. And there's too much focus also on an absolute number of 7%, 7.5% in China's growth rather than the absolute amount. When you've got an economy now which is over 10 trillion, which is coming towards the US size and double the size, of course, of what Japan, when they surpassed Japan a few years ago. When you say 7% and then you've put inflation on top, you're creating each year 800 to a trillion of new um, money in the system. And that has to go somewhere. That goes into businesses. And at the moment, the businesses it's going into, we believe, is a move away from the historic infrastructure, commodity-driven, property-driven, and into the service sector. And one should look much more into the opportunities in the service sector in these emerging markets, especially health care, um, the modernization of the financial services. And that's where I think a lot of opportunities are there. Does it hurt a little bit as a fund manager when you put a lot of attention into some of these uh, areas and then all of a sudden um, bond yields start to ease up uh, again because of thoughts of the end of tapering and then people sell uh, EM quite aggressively? There is that risk, and we've seen it, and China is out of favor um, still. Even now it's um, sort of bottomed, but it's still out of favor compared to other markets. And money flows where um, performance is. So um, performance generates return, and it generates interest in that market. And you see that in India, obviously, when Modi. But one of the things that Chris has been talking about over the last few days has been that Look at markets where the government's encouraging you to invest as well, and that's clearly um, India and Japan, while China is still quite tight. It's still looking at the um, question of reform in those markets, and we haven't seen a clear route there yet. So do I think China is undervalued? Yes. Do I think opportunities may be elsewhere first? India, um, Japan, maybe. But you should um, look at the opportunities in China now because it will be coming and it has bottomed, I think. Chris has an interesting story about being whipsawed by a short seller uh, and put out a, a flash of uh, green and fear. <laughs> um, you, you pulled back on the stock, uh, 21 Vionet, and then you went back uh, and put it back in the portfolio. You want to just take 30 seconds? Oh, no, and I only put it? that back in because we've, by pure coincidence, we initiated, I already had the stock and we initiated coverage on this stock. Literally, uh, when was it? Um, two days ago. So obviously, we were about to initiate coverage, and then this thing came out. But the short is, seller report came out, and the stock got actually, sold down it, aggressively. Yeah, but it is an interesting uh, reflection on what seems rank market manipula manipulation here. But so it does, basically, when we're you know, analysts uh, basically basically checked checked it out, and they still view the thought, thought the stock was a good story. So I would put it back in. So it's kind of interesting because it, it goes to the story about um, you know accounting uh, practice and uh, general business practices, and, and that's very much uh, in the discussion about Alibaba now. Um, do you have uh, strong views about how well these China companies can be trusted? Well, yeah, but there's a it's a binary story. So it's clearly there's been the, probably the worst corporate governance. Um, incidents in Asia have been the Chinese private sector. <clears throat> On the other hand, as Hughes just correctly outlined, the huge growth opportunity in China and Asia is the private, is private sector Chinese service companies. And actually the e-commerce boom in China is the ultimate expression of that private sector China in action. So, so people, you know, listening to the program who uh, manage a small investment portfolio or perhaps even uh, portfolio managers, 
are always wrestling with this problem. Uh, they want to go into China, but they have some concerns. And it seems like the values are so low and, and have stayed so. Look at the banks. Well, let me ask you briefly, uh, Hugh, do you like the banks more now that the, we got this $500 billion of liquidity shot in? I think you have to be careful with the banks. Banks are cheap, and when you say the market's cheap, um, you, it's quite um, <coughs> separated between the very cheap property and banks and the quite expensive Internet companies. And the Internet companies are also um, moving from sector to sector within Internet. You have the sector such as the gaming stocks, and then you've got the um, e-commerce companies. But so, some, even some of the Internet companies have become pretty cheap because yeah. of the sell-off. You look no. at Kingsoft. Everybody yeah. had it on its buy list before. It's down 40%. You know, since and, it's got a lot of, you know, and these companies, a lot of them have got a lot of cash too and so that they can deploy that cash in a number of ways. One of the things that's interesting about these companies are that how they change rapidly. If you look at Tencent, it's changed from just a gaming platform now to a, an e-commerce and um, a company that provides um, – Social networks. So I believe that... And even looks like uh, financial um, uh, advice and financial options. Which comes to the point about the banks. The banks are going to be disintermediated. The fund managers are being Mm. disintermediated already by social networks. And unless you start to realize the power of the social network and that it's not just selling product, it's allowing people to buy product that they want to buy. So Tencent and Alibaba have had very large money market funds which have been disintermediated because they've got higher yields than the banks are providing. So those banks are cheap, but they do need to be careful about what's available in the market. Chris, any strong views on banks in China? No, I think the the banks and all these SOEs, the key variable in the banks is government policy. So if the Chinese government decides to let the banks sell all their loans at 100 cents on the dollar to AMCs, then the banks will go up a lot. Hmm. I mean, they're, you know, they're not... They're, they're, so it's they're, a political decision. It's all though. about policy, yeah. yeah. Okay, um, we've got lots more time here, and we can have some more discussion uh, generally about markets and uh, which markets uh, these fellas like. But there was an interesting item as well that the big California pension fund, CalPERS, was pulling its investments from hedge funds. It didn't have a huge percentage in there, but it's still telling, in a sense. The pension group noted that it had paid $135 million in fees to managers. We get more here from Bloomberg's Eric Schatzker. Is that so much CalPERS, the biggest U.S. public pension plan, spent in the past year paying management fees to hedge funds? Those investments made CalPERS a 7.1% return. Over the past decade, they've returned an average of just 4.8%, far less than publicly traded stocks or private equity. Not enough, it appears, to justify the expense and complexity because CalPERS is getting out. So they're getting out. The pension fund's chief investment officer is Ted Eliopoulos. The board directed the investment staff and asked me as the interim chief investment officer to conduct a very thorough and detailed review of our hedge fund program and come back with a recommendation to the board uh, as to its uh, continued efficacy within our program. And that's what we did. And just yesterday we announced uh, that we had concluded that review and uh, announced publicly that our conclusion was to wind down our hedge fund program. So wind down the hedge fund program, not using hedge funds at all. Um, Hugh, do you use hedge funds at all? And it's basically what Calper is saying, that they just don't want to be short. They basically see the next little period that they just want to be long. 
I think hedge funds have um, a very good role in the marketplace. They just have to be careful at the moment of where the money comes from and the type of clients they get. After the, Asia, the global financial crisis, a lot of those hedge funds reacted in different ways. The fund of funds had a lot of redemptions because of Madoff and the whole um, how they were looked at. But Another set of hedge funds did very well. They, ga they gathered a lot of money because they had protected some and they didn't put up gates at that time. I think there is a role um, for uh, hedge funds for low volatility or for macro, which divides the different risks up. The same way as you've got ETFs and index funds providing a role um, as well as long. But I go back to saying, well, what next? Um, do you think that, and this is a question to both of you, do you think that the social network environment will start? Because the financial and the fund managers haven't really been disintermediated like the music industry or the airline industry or anything like that, whereby you put the power back to the individual. The brokers aren't there at the moment. But it does seem that one of the selling points of Alibaba is that that Yui Bao program that it had attracted billions and billions of Shadow banking market investment money. Um, you mean the money market fund? The money market yeah. fund. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but those money market funds are simply investing loans to banks. So if you buy, if you buy an Alibaba money fund, you're basically taking bank credit risk. Mm. You're lending short-term money to banks. So this is part of the uh, overall loan risk in China that makes Completely you nervous? Completely, because you're lending money to the smaller banks who have got the liquidity problems, not the big four that are okay. And you also may have an additional problem because I think they gear their fund a bit mm. too. Yes, because um, you get something like 6%, uh, yeah. right? And, and so the money's not there. it must be geared. No, the yeah. money's not there. So the interesting issue is simply – the interesting issue in China is always the policy – so the question is why, I mean, the Chinese uh, PBOC, the bank regulators, are not stupid. They understand this. So it's interesting they're allowing this to happen. Your China economy guy, uh, Francis, is not that um, uh, strong on, uh, on China. Um, he always seems to be nervous about um, the economy. Um, where do you come down, Chris? It seems like no. you've been pretty positive. You, you've got quite a number in your, um, in your portfolio. No, I've got some e-commerce stocks playing this uh, service sector theme, which Who's been talking about? But you know that's that's just owning the where the growth is. But the, the, the I'm, no, I'm, I'm, but at times you've had cement in there. You've had um, yeah. But I've know. got a bit. I'm not. I'm not gun ho on China. It's, it's very. It's a very complicated story. There's mixed signals. So they're trying to reform the economy. They're letting the property market correct. But then we get an announcement like we got yesterday on the banks. So it's mixed signals, and therefore, so just be careful. I've been maintaining a you know small underweight towards China. You know, the simple story in Asia remains India. So is that what you're most positive on at the moment? Yeah, no, that's what I've been most positive on for the last year, and I'll remain most positive for the next four years unless Mr. Modi is assassinated. Yeah. In which case, my market will go down 20% in dollar terms. You have to be a bit careful, though, about India because of expectations. And they ran up with Modi and now they come down, especially in infrastructure, to make that infrastructure work or the bank um, and the private sector banks versus the public sector banks. So what are you the most positive about, Hugh? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, <laughs> um, like giving away trade secrets no, is not no my uh, favorite thing to do. <laughs> no, no trade secrets. Okay. Um, it's, as I was saying, that I think there are service sectors in China that are attractive. I think there are financial stocks in India, infrastructure stocks in India. And um, because you've got the growth, you've got the inefficiency and the opportunity and the lack of – when you – 
go into a market that has got lack of support or some questioning of it, which is infrastructure in India at the moment, there are opportunities to make money again. Um, make money in China, I think there is opportunity there. And the third area that I think Chris likes to talk about is Japan at the moment. Um, and there are some opportunities in the Japanese property sector, financial sector, and construction. But um, you have to be quite selective around the region. But going back to the point, you need liquidity to come back. Liquidity, I mean confidence, money to flow into fund managers, money to come into mutual funds and index funds. And what's happened over the last three months, it's been the ETFs and the index funds that have got the money. And that's flown into, uh, flowed into the larger cap companies, which pushed up the index first. Then you're going to see a rotation and people start looking at other sectors as well. Chris, a brief word on Japan. Uh, QE to work in the short term. Uh, it may end deflation, but in the long term, it's yeah. not good. Well, actually, actually, I've got a very simple view on Japan, which was that deflation was slowly but surely coming to an end even before they adopted this QE experiment. Because of demographic uh, simply, considerations? Yeah, simply because the working age population is shrinking. So it's common sense that uh, the more they shrink, the, the, those people still working get some pricing power. Mm-hmm. And you've also got uh, women participation rate rising. So the bottom line, the earnings, the nominal incomes are finally going up. But this QE ex- sort of high beta experiment on top just means you're now going to get an asset price cycle in Japan. Chris Oliver, our producer, joins us in the studios. I think Chris would like to ask a question. Uh, yes, uh, good morning. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I just want to ask a uh, question to Chris here. You've uh, been uh, at the CLSA conference. Anything that's uh, been uh, spoken about this uh, week uh, that's caught your eye? Yeah, give us some news. Well, no, the problem there is I'm permanently in meetings with investors, so I haven't seen a single presentation. Okay, what's the most interesting thing you've heard from those investors you've spoken to? I know I'm talking about different subjects, but there's an awful lot of interesting presentations. I just haven't been able to um, Okay, I'll, I'll jump them. in. I went to a couple of them, which I thought was quite interesting. One was about population growth and that the world's not going to explode and that 10 billion people is quite manageable. And, in fact, that while people live longer, um, people are having fewer babies and that um, – if you have high unemployment, people are less confident about having children and the likelihood of having larger number of families goes down. And so don't be frightened about um, population. The reason why this is relevant is it's hard to get economic growth if you don't have population growth. Can, can you actually structure a portfolio with these long, no, um, no, no, massive uh, megatrends in mind? No, but it's talk, a couple of talk, uh, talks were on cities and the growth of cities and the concentration of population and where those people come to get the jobs that are available and meet people and socially interact and so forth. So it was about the use of where you want to invest city-wise and in which sectors because of population. What's a big trend that uh, you like at the moment? No, look, on the demographics, my favorite market in Asia by far for the last three or four years has been the Philippines. That's a tremendous demographic story. And as I say, my, the only reason Philippines is not my favorite market is because Mr. Modi got elected a huge majority. So India's now my favorite market, and that's got hugely positive demographics. And you still like gold because you think of a breakdown of the fiat money system? No, I, know. I, like, I think this is a year where the gold's in a trading range. But look, next year, the gold trade is going to come back, either bearish or bullish. It's going to be all about whether the Fed can exit QE zero weights smoothly or not.
Okay, we'll close it on that note. We just, uh, Bob, before signing off, we just want to have a word here. Uh, regular listeners to the program will probably be aware that uh, Brian is uh, <laughs> set to step down from uh, his role here at RTHK under uh, mandatory retirement. <laughs> Um, it, Brian is uh, head of the Radio 3 and Radio 4, but in addition to that, he's also been the host and the driver of the Money for Nothing program, uh, which launched in 2011. So it's been a three-year run for the program. It's attracted a, a wide-ranging audience. So we really want to thank Brian for everything he's done to... Do I need to put my sunglasses on now so you can't see me tear up? <laughs> you do. It was no. a great job. We, but no. we just want to assure our listeners that the program will be uh, will carry on in its regular time slot. Yes, Renita Mahaltrahora will be along, uh, along with a guest host scheme that we have, some of your favorites, and also Chris Oliver will pop in as well, and we'll continue to have fantastic guests on the program like Christopher Wood and Hugh Simon. It's been my great pleasure here. <laughs> Almost choked up the weather briefly. Uh, let's see what it portends today. Looks like a fairly okay day. Uh, the tropical storm moves away, mainly cloudy. Some showers, showers easing off. Maximum temperature, 31 degrees. Sayonara, it's been a great pleasure for me serving you on Radio 3 and Radio 4. The News with Todd Harding. President Obama has described the outbreak of Ebola in West Africa as a threat to global security. Speaking at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Mr. Obama said the disease was spiraling out of control. The BBC's Alistair Leithhead reports. Six months after Ebola broke out in West Africa, President Barack Obama announced a major intervention by the U.S.